Welcome back to this film, Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, where we try to talk as objectively as possible about movies while also talking full spoilers, so you have been warned. I'm Curtis. I'm Eric. And today we have a, a special guest star. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Groucho, or Nolani. Uh, we'll go by Groucho today. Uh, and... I am really excited to be hanging out with these guys on this podcast today. Um, I used to work in movies and uh, am really excited to discuss them with everyone. Mm. All right. So what did you do with movies? So um, I, I did a lot of things, but the main, the main gig that I had was working as a script supervisor, which basically means that I was working beside the director to maintain the continuity and to take very extensive notes for editorial uh, on the pictures that we were shooting. I, I, I have respect for script supervisors <laughs> because some, uh, my wife was actually pointing this out recently about like what a nightmare it must be for people who work in like Disney and Marvel at this point. <laughs> trying to you know come up with like why did the costume change why does someone not have this makeup on and like all these different kinds of things I can only imagine so is there a movie that stuck out to you this week um well I wouldn't just say it was this week but there's a movie yeah. um that I would like to discuss with you guys today that is one that has stood out to me since I first saw it which I believe was probably around 24 14 or so mm -hmm. um and it is called magnolia it's mm -hmm. a movie that came out in 1999 directed by paul thomas anderson and it is very uh deep and very thought-provoking and so i'm really looking forward to digging into that with you guys yeah your your goal is now to be objective about magnolia okay um Good luck. Uh, <laughs> so uh, as uh, our gauntlet is currently working, I'm going to start asking you questions. And as soon as I say number one, I'm starting asking you questions, at which point, if you give us any subjective opinion, whether you're saying, well, it is a fact that that's my opinion or not, you get a buzz. You hear one buzz. And then after that, you've, that is as far as you've gotten in the gauntlet. You get through all the questions, 10 questions, you'll be in like a hall of fame as someone who has managed to be objective about a movie. I'm going to go ahead and say uh, question one. Is Magnolia good or bad? I think that people going into this movie, especially for the first time, could walk away with very mixed emotions because this is a movie that is meant to make you think very deeply about life and it's meaning and forgiveness, which is not an easy concept to swallow, I think, when you watch a movie, especially one this long and with this many characters. So uh, there are, I think, probably are a lot of people who would argue about whether this is a good or a bad movie for that reason. I like that. Okay, okay. I, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I know it's weird. It's going to seem analytical because I'm looking to track it because there are you, uh, saying something subjective doesn't necessarily get you a point. It depends on your answer to the question. And the answer to the question was objective. There are a lot of reasons why people would argue back and forth about this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well done. Question Thanks. Two. <laughs> question two, what is your favorite scene or what is the best scene in the movie? I would really have to sit down and think about, um, all of the scenes in this movie to try to calculate if I were to tell you what my favorite or what the best scene was, because there's, um, I think one of the things that this movie attempted to do and, and, and probably is mo it's most famous for is being extremely emotional. So this movie has an ensemble cast, right? And every single actor in this movie has an opportunity to, um, really express themselves as an actor, whether it's mm. crying or screaming or dropping to their knees and giving up on life, uh, attempting suicide, you know, you, you name it. Um, and all of those scenes could, for the right viewer, be extremely impactful. Um, but I think that the point of this movie is the connection between all of these characters that's kind of behind the veil um, and sort of how each 
decision that each character in this film makes affects every other character. So it's kind of a loaded answer, but I think that the entire piece as a whole is important to take away what the director was trying to uh, tell the story. Curtis? I, I honestly don't know. I have to. Okay. All right. I'm so sorry. I love Buzz that me. answer. All right. I think ultimately the point that you made, which I agree with, and maybe like 99.99% of people would agree with, there's some person out there who's going to be like, that's not the point. You know, whether <laughs> yeah. maybe they haven't looked things up about Paul Thomas Anderson or whatever. And so, yeah. Long as there's that 0.01% wrong person out there, it's a subjective opinion. So that's okay. I did my best. <laughs> yeah, it was it, good. I, yeah. I really like the time and thought that you put into it. And it, it like as a whole, I 100% agree with you. I feel like the thing is even layered musically to make sure you try and stop seeing individual stories as separate components. But what would you, if you had to, cut from the movie? One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this movie is because it, it this is obviously an opinion, um, but I find it to be one of the most curated films that I have ever seen. Um, and that's one of the things that it makes it so powerful to me. Um, so because this movie is so like every single action and every single thing that happens in every single scene has a corresponding effect to some character or some other scene later in the movie that pretty much removing anything could cause either a plot hole or it could cause uh, some meaningful little trail to not make sense any longer. Um, but that said, reading about this movie, one of the things that you'll find is that the scenes that have Dixon, the little kid who does the rap, uh, yes. to the officer. Um, he originally, I, I believe they had filmed more with him. Um, oh. And ha he had a more fleshed out story. And I think when you read reviews about this movie, that's probably the part that they didn't understand. They didn't mm -hmm. understand who the worm was or what the kid was rapping about or how it had to do with the rest of the story. And that if anything in the movie were going to be removed, um, without affecting the rest of the story, it would probably be that. I am so glad you said that because just rewatching the movie, like one of the things that stuck out to me was John C. Riley dealing with this person. Like there's this sort of police procedural thing that is only ever in glimpses. You, you see Dixon in the neighborhood you have that tense moment of him dropping his gun and the right. rain and whatnot. I don't, it's such a bizarre because it has a different connotation where it feels like, well, this is a guy who's usually obsessed with his job. And yet he has this romance ironically with this woman that is helps my brain settle down to know that there was more there. So um, who's the best and who is the worst actor? Um, wow. Uh, it's it's a really big cast, and I think they all really pull their weight. So if I'm going to say someone who was the worst actor, that's not to say that they didn't do a good job, right? That's yeah. just mm -hmm. to say that everyone else was so freaking incredible um, that maybe they were overshadowed just a little bit. Mm. Um, personally, and this may be an unpopular opinion, but I found... And I continue to find myself every time I watch this movie the most impressed by Tom Cruise. Um, I know that a lot of people feel like he overacted in this movie. I know a lot of people were not as much of a fan of him because he's not the usual Paul Thomas Anderson casting. Um, but I, knowing the kinds of roles that Tom Cruise usually was doing around this time in his career, and yeah. even to date, and then seeing him perform as Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia, um, I think really showed his acting chops because he had never, and I don't think ever has since, done a character like this at all. Um, so that would probably be my pick for just the most, like, I was wowed. I really felt this role, like, to its fullest extent. Um, and... This also might be an unpopular opinion, but if I was going to pick an actor from this movie as the weakest, and again, 
it's by an infinitesimal amount. Um, it would probably be um, the one who plays Claudia Gator. Um, mm-hmm. She does her. do a very, very good job. She, I mean, she really kills it. She really, really kills it. But I feel like her character uh, through a lot of the movie is perhaps a little bit more one note than the rest of the characters. It's sort of this like, I'm addicted to cocaine. I'm upset about something that you don't know about. I'm shaking. I'm crying. I'm freaking out. And that's her performance for like 90% of the movie. Um, so it, it's not real. it's the writing obviously, but she didn't really have as much of an opportunity for range as I think the rest of her cast needs. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. What's interesting for me is that, uh, from, from what I found, Claudia was actually the first character to be written for the, for this movie. And then every other character was like branched off from her. So she- that does make sense based on, I am, I'm trying to, have you seen Magnolia, Curtis? Uh, I have one time, but one I time. did enjoy it. Yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to hear that based on just the fact that the movie ends with on her breaking the fourth wall and looking directly into the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't surprise me to hear whatsoever. Okay. So I'm going to ask one more and then the other five questions I'll turn over to Curtis. So okay. sure. this is going to be difficult. So luckily it's not a, a objective subjective thing. Oh, uh, good. Your f- favorite quote from the movie? Um, one that always comes back to me, and it's so simple. It's such a simple, simple little moment toward the end of the movie when um, Stanley is hiding from his dad in his school library. And all of a sudden, he sees the reign of frogs. And he just says, this is something that happens. And I think that that quote summarizes the entire point of the movie so succinctly and so well that so you can take all of this experience you've had viewing all of these characters going through their personal hells up to this point and just sort of like swallow it and take a breath and understand like life happens weird things happen all the time um Mm -hmm. i think that's a really really powerful line so that's the one that comes to mind first and foremost when you ask me that all right, then. So I guess I'll be finishing this out with the last five questions. So starting right. with, starting with uh, what is this movie missing? Or is well, there anything that you... Yeah, would... like what you would add back in. So yeah. I, I kind of awkwardly talked about it. But if you have anything else also. So, yeah, I would say that it's, it's just such a, like, expertly executed film that I don't think that there's a lot that really needs to be added to it. Mm-hmm. But um, the one thing that I think a lot of people walk away from this movie with who, who don't really enjoy it as much is a little bit of confusion. Um, I think people watch this movie and sometimes they don't understand the point. They don't understand what everything means. Maybe they miss something. They don't really get what happened or they, they don't understand. Like if this character died, I've read a lot of people who were not sure if Jimmy Gator was dead at the end of the movie, things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that, you know, if they were if they were going to add anything to this movie to make it any better, it would probably be just little moments here and there for clarity, which yeah. I think would include um, showing a little bit more of that ending sequence with Jimmy Gator so that people can confirm they know for sure that he's in that fire and he's not coming out. Um, or a little bit more with Dixon so that they understand who the worm is and where uh, the officer, um, Jim Curran, gets his gun back. From um, just little things like that would probably be the kind of the icing on top of the cake for people who didn't enjoy the movie or didn't understand the movie to walk away feeling just as um, happy uh, or excited about having viewed it as the people who did. So, yeah. Well then, uh, what did you enjoy from the story? Um, the story is. One of, one of the things that I love the most about it, because, and I, I look for this a lot in movies. Um, I mean, I love movies in general, uh, but I tend to find that the ones that I'm the most attracted to are simple stories that are relatable um, about things that happen in everyday life that any one of us can experience. And that is exactly what this movie is about, down to the title. Magnolia is a boulevard up in the valley that connects a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where this story takes place it takes place basically in burbank california just off of you know just outside of la 
um, on Magnolia Boulevard, where all of these people are connected. And um, it's kind of funny when you think about the amount of times in your life, looking back, um, that you've had experiences with other people that have caused you to say, hey, what a small world, man. Um, That's what this movie is. Yes. (laughs) This is one of my favorite questions. Uh, Did you learn anything about making films from watching Magnolia? You know what? What I learned filmmaking wise from watching Magnolia would have to be about writing. Um, Mm. I mean, this movie does a lot really well. The cinematography is beautiful. The composition and the music is absolutely stunning. And I know that Paul Thomas Anderson wrote this movie to Amy Mann's music, which is a huge theme throughout to the point Mm. where the actors are literally lip syncing to one of her songs. But I think what really stood out to me in terms of you know, looking at it from a creative uh, perspective was how intricately the script connected every single character and how unique each character's voice was. Um, One little trick that I learned about screenwriting many, many years ago uh, (laughs) was that when you're writing a script, in order to make sure that your character's dialogue stands out from your other character's dialogues, that when someone else reads it, your characters each have their own identity, something that you can do is to put your fingers or your hand over the names of the characters and read only the dialogue. And if you cannot tell who's saying what, then your dialogue is not unique enough to each character. Um, and I feel like this movie is a really, really good example of um, someone taking their time to do something just like that, because I feel like each character is so unique and there's so many of them and they each have a full story. And that is not an easy thing to accomplish in screenwriting. So when I'm writing, I often go back and look at the script for this movie or watch scenes from this movie to try to emulate um, that exact kind of thing. Great. That's a fantastic (laughs) answer. Uh, What would make you watch Magnolia again? The, The times that I find myself coming back to this movie are typically when I feel like I need to watch something that understands a deeper aspect of life. This movie is heavy. This movie is not easy to digest. It's a little bit easier when you've seen it before, um, probably than the first time that you watch it. But there's a lot of very, very deep, depressing story arcs in this movie. Um, it's not one that you watch and you walk away feeling good from. It's a movie that you watch and you walk away thinking about your life. And uh, when I'm looking for a movie that's going to put me into a mood where I'm really feeling philosophical and calculating and thinking about the things in my life that need to change or that I need to be better about or work on, I will go for a movie like this. Um, You know, I usually will (laughs) span it out a little bit. It's not a movie that I would watch like once a month or anything. Um, But that's that's (laughs) that's weird because I've been watching it consistently day after day for a week and I'm (laughs) (laughs) full. And now this is the one that we like the most. would Nicolas Cage have made this movie better? Nicolas Cage. I think he could have pulled off some role. Um, I am a I like Nicolas Cage. I really do. I just saw the new the new Nicolas Cage movie that came out mm. recently and it uh, tickled the, my fancy the, so hard. Mm-hmm. The unbearable mm-hmm. weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a massive um, talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, fantastic. Fantastic. I'm watch. trying hard to not use Tom Cruise's quotes. And do a Nicolas Cage impression. Well, that oh. was that was immediately where my brain went. Yeah. The moment that you asked about Nicolas Cage, I was like, "How would Nicolas Cage have done as Frank T.J. Mackey?" <laughs> I'm trying to decide if I'd like that better, or or uh, the two others. I would have him be Tom Cruise's dad, so he has to be in the bed reacting to mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, or uh, Dixon. <laughs> He would tell Dixon. I was also thinking this kid Donnie Smith, imagining oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought about freaking this. out about trying needing braces, uh, yeah, and and then smashing his face open. I could I could see Nicholas Cage pulling that off. Oh, <laughs> actually, very well, like genuinely well. I think that could, but that was. <sighs> but that's it for the gauntlet. So now we can just talk freely about this movie without too much worry of repercussion. Those were great questions. I really enjoyed those questions, guys. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. They're going to be completely different a week from now. But hey, not totally. 
Um, William, I want to hug William H. Macy. He's he's adorable. Oh my goodness! I actually got to work with him. Um, really not, nice. Yeah, it was. I, I think it was in September or October of last year, mm-hmm. and uh, he is a pro. Let me tell you, mm-hmm. he. We were doing a scene where he was on the phone. And he's like wandering around the room. So I'm trying to track the continuity of where in the room and what direction he's facing as he's having different parts of this conversation, which is pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he comes up to me and he's just like, okay, so I'm on the phone and I'm, I'm saying this and I'm looking that way and then I'm over here and then I walk around the bed and then I sit on, and he's just like, he had it all memorized, like down to a T. He did it perfectly every time. He was super chill and really, really nice. Super cool guy. That's Oh, so now he there. William H Macy has brought me to two other points that that you made me think of because one of the things with the behind the scenes on this is I I realized how much work goes into hitting your mark and hitting it the right way. You tilt the camera down on any of those sets, and there was like cardboard with tape instead of a floor. Oh yeah, everywhere. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little cool. t- little T marks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, in like different colors, different, different colored lines for the different yep. tracks. Yeah. Sorry. So the other thing that William H Macy is, you were talking so much about the the questions. I think that are hardest for this are, would you take out or put back anything? And the funny thing is, in the behind the scenes, there's William H Macy talking to the uh, documentary crew. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And he's joking about like the second. He and um, Julianne Moore made a comment like, I mean, the script's a little long, but it's great. You get back like a reaction, like, I'm not cutting one freaking word out of the thing. Like, no, yeah. like an aggressive defense of it. And um, yeah, that's like one of those things. I'm like, I, I, it's funny. I asked what should be cut out of Magnolia. And I picture him like freaking out somewhere. He's <laughs> that's got a, so funny. Vibe. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. The whole writing of this is a bizarre thing. Curtis... Uh, knows uh, a lot about some of it, but like, really, it's just like, you want to write something small, you end up with this big thing, but then you care mm-hmm. about it so much. And apparently the only reason he stopped writing was he got final cut privilege. So it's like, you get to keep writing later. So. Right. right. Yeah. That, 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 that just comes along with like uh, the, 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 the deal he got after Boogie Nights was a, such a success that uh, Universal said, okay, you made us a lot of money. Make whatever you want. Yeah. And, and w- with complete control, too. So he took him up because he had the feeling he'd never have an opportunity to like, like this again. So he just jumped on it. Amazing. And, and we're so glad he did. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like a lot of what you said. I, I agree with you a lot on, I think, the pur- purpose of this. And, and a big part of it, I think, is as adults, we care more about other people than we do when we're like younger, when we're children. Sure. The, mm-hmm. the relationships in this between like children and fathers and that long lasting thing. And just looking at the concept of the song playing at everybody's, you know, house, having Tom Cruise's uh, seminar playing on television amid all these different things. It really makes me think about like, you know, I listen to the radio. Everyone else listening to the radio, especially in my local area, is going to have something in common with me mood-wise. Mm-hmm. I wonder what's yeah. going on with them. They're so drastically different. Different cultures, different backgrounds, different problems, you know. And this movie really does capture, like, if there's this community and it's one main character, this is the story of how that community, the main character, goes through something. Right. And, yeah, and that, that song adds a like that 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 song that they're all lip syncing kind of towards the end. It has an extra connecting factor because the the line that they're lip syncing has something to do re- related to their story. Like when uh, when when Gator is is singing his his line, it's referring to his his cancer diagnosis. When mm-hmm. Claudia is is singing, it, it's referring to her addiction to cocaine. And so like when whenever they're they're lip syncing their part, it has something specific to do with their very specific story and so that's just another yeah. interconnecting factor to this whole thing I'm it's really... just so curated <laughs> yeah that is ex- well not curated i said crafted that's the odd thing they're they're so carefully crafting spontaneity and randomness yeah oh, yes that is so at odds with itself like, like like right down to the beginning shot with that what two minute and 18 second long uh, opening shot where it's just the kid running around the back of of the studio and the camera's 
yeah. following different mm-hmm. characters that, that like seamlessly. It, it's very controlled. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think I think that really highlights what I believe Paul Thomas Anderson's point, entire point was with this movie, which is using this guise of insane coincidence to prove that there is no coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the movie reinforces it. It feels free because of how crazy controlled it is. <laughs> so the camera can go wherever it wants, but not really. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I I also, I, I think the writing is a big thing and why I'd watch this again. And it's fascinating what you're talking about with dialogue, because I think like even people who are professionally paid, like I love anything written by Aaron Sorkin, but he's mm-hmm. notorious for having a problem with a bunch of characters sounding the same in his scripts. And it's one of those things that like when it works, it works. But when you want to overcome that hurdle, there's like an answer out there, an exercise. That's great. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I agree that I would watch this again for writing, but also simulating, like when you're directing and you're having to simulate living spaces and stuff like that. I think this mm-hmm. is really good for staging things. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I just love the practicality to like everything that, that the movie does. Like even, even with the frog raining scene at the end, like they, they made like 7,900 prop frogs to, to rain down on on everyone i mean the, the rest was cg animated but like they went to amazing lengths to make everything seem as real and, and like tangible as possible mm-hmm. yeah and it it just adds to the horrifying nature of yeah. what yeah. the characters are experiencing in that moment when you see those frogs thudding on top of their cars and cracking their windshields mm-hmm. open it's pretty cool I, I don't know if they ended up using these but there's this behind the scenes thing uh, where people are confronting Paul Thomas Anderson with different production companies having different frogs ready at different times. And Industrial Light and Magic was willing to do a certain number of quote-unquote hero frogs that could function and be real and whatnot. But like it's like they they framed those to be the ones that are on the cars and in your face and whatnot. So they could just dump everything out of like faucets in the back. Yeah. And oh my gosh, that whole thing just seems so perfectly bizarre and yet and yet all alluded to like uh, the the like a, a lot of like little clues to to uh exodius 8 2 that that that, that, that oh, he yeah. put into the movie that he only added in after someone mentioned that that this bible verse was yeah. related to it it was for plant he, he took it from the writings of i think uh charles ford it looks like ports and when someone mentioned the that that it represented a, a bible verse he said oh that's cool. I'm gonna and he just he he, he ran, ran with, with it. it. He, uh, he just put things in there. Yeah, and it's 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 really weird how well that that verse kind of connects with everything else because like so you're hang on just a second. Sorry, so you're telling me that this this gentleman was thought of the frogs just cause and defended that all the way through, and then they were like, hey, there's a possible explanation. He's like, okay, thanks. He like was just trusting that this was going to work. And yeah. Now yes. the actual line is, "And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs." So the whole thing is about not letting go of past trauma. Yeah. And no one, and it's so it it, it rains frogs on everyone who who, who wouldn't let it's go. It's so that perfect. Is perfect. That's great. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's move on to the black phone then. start i was gonna ask groucho have you seen the exorcism of emily rose yes i have have you seen uh it's another horror movie deliver us from evil maybe oh man i can't remember hold on let me look it up oh 2014 oh you know what no i have not seen this one okay uh and did you see 2016's dr strange like his standalone first movie no okay so then after he was that those are those are the primary movies that he's made a couple okay. of those with the same writer oh sinister is, is the main big one to think about so have you seen sinister no okay oh so sorry <laughs> that's, that's no fine. that's good i wanted to know how far we could go how much we needed to explain and how much we didn't have to explain so that's helpful when i well i i, I wanted to watch it because uh it, it just off, based off the trailer alone, it looked like it was going to be a nice, like a uh, 
a a a a a a very simple concept for for optimal amount of uh, scare, which is what I was kind of looking for. I, I'm I, I like I I, I like films like uh, Rosemary's Baby, like uh, like like The Exorcist, where where there's like this like steady building of tension and fear, and that's what I thought black film was going to give me. So, two simple explanations to explain the uh, to explain the premise. A child is locked in a basement and uh-huh. there's a phone that's not connected to the wall. When it rings, he can hear voices of past victims from a serial killer played by Ethan Hawke. And they give him little tips and hints on how to deal with the situation and maybe survive. And then his sister on the other side is someone who's undergoing uh, domestic abuse and uh, has visions in her dreams of things that are going on around them. And she thinks this can lead her to help her brother. So yes, sister with visions, brother trapped in the basement and it's just, can he get out and can she save him? So yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's based on a short story by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, which, which, which was interesting because while this was uh, going on, there were, there was, there were a lot of moments where I thought this, you know, this feels very Stephen King with, with, with with the kid, oh, that's with the cool. kids, uh, there's a lot of swearing in, involved. There's uh, uh, at the very beginning, at, at the very least, there's this inherent distrust of adult figures and figures of authority, which is very common in Stephen King. It's funny. There's this. It's this recurrent thing where Joe Hill's properties, the way that they're adapted, they seem to have a lot of traits from Stephen King, but they are nastier they are like grittier or bloodier or there's something that's about crazy them. to hear because stephen king does not hold back so well, I, I, I imagine more in his writing because in the adaptations you know there's often they're often so like i don't know how to explain it like i think he writes with a bite that sometimes isn't there in some of his movies and then i appreciate sure and stuff sure and i think that's probably why stephen king also doesn't like a lot of the adaptations of his of his writing so Joe Hill, yeah, so so this there was that aspect of it that was exciting and then there was the Scott Derrickson of it all which is the director who he was going to make Doctor Strange 2. Uh-huh. Then they announced it was going to be a horror movie. And Scott Derrickson, all the movies that I listed in except I think for Sinister are PG-13 horror movies. Exorcism of Emily Rose is Uh PG-13. And it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, this guy can do effective PG-13 horror. So this is going to be great. And then he got dropped. And okay, Sam Raimi's in it. Cool. All the good things that people have from that, that's fine. But I was just like, oh. And I have been following Robert Cargill because I really like what they do. And... It just it, you got you got the sense that Scott Derrickson was talking about. I'm really happy to be doing something that's so personal. This might be the most personal project I've been working on. This is already said like a year or so ago, and it turns out the original short story is basically just the concept of a kid in the room with a phone. So everything from Ethan Hawke being a guy who wears a mask to the stuff that's happening with the kids outside of school to the individual characters of the kids outside the school, like a, a, ton to, a ton of this stuff is completely original and based Ooh. on Scott Derrickson exploring what life was like growing up in the 70s as a kid for him. And it's funny because all these children are wailing on each other until their faces bleed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what happened to you growing <laughs> up? are you okay yeah people got just 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 got in fights and, and had broken noses constantly it's, it was a normal thing in, in the 70s i think, I think this is when this, this takes place which is that's the thing that caught my attention like instantly when when the movie started was like everything down to uh the the soda can designs were like yeah. very very specific to that era oh, it, it, like crazy it, amount of detail and like and and even going to like the first time you're inside the kid's home uh, it, it, it's, it's just, it's just morning. There are, there are beer bottles laying around. The dad is like very twitchy at any slightest hint of noise. So instantly just, just, just visually he, he drinks a lot. He's hungover. The kids are very cautious around him. So he probably beats them. He's probably an abusive father. And this just plays out like not a word of dialogue is spoken to explain this. It's just in the scenery. Yeah, sure. And I think he accidentally did a, a, a super scary thing. 
Um, because he's talking about the there's a scene, you know, it's supposed to be the dad, you know, he's just drunk and he takes the belt to his daughter whenever she talks about her dreams and being able to see things because you know that's something that happened to her mom and it's 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 heartfelt and tragic and feels bad man um <laughs> yes but you they intentionally the scene where she had to be in the middle of that abuse yeah you never see him actually swing at her yes but at the same time i feel like i saw him swing at her but i know i didn't and i think they might have accidentally done the thing from texas chainsaw massacre where they left they put you so close to the threat and then left it up to your imagination. So everyone assumes Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the goriest movie ever. And there's almost no blood in that movie. Mm. And I think they might've done something similar where it's like, Oh man, I swear that girl was destroyed. And it's like, no, yeah, he never actually swings, but it's like, <laughs> so yeah. Worse. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. Like you said, he like Scott Derrickson was, was very particular with how he shot that scene. Cause he, he wanted you to feel discomfort he didn't want the scene to make you turn on the movie, which is why he shot it in the way he did. Yeah. Um, the mask, fun fact, that mm -hmm. will give Curtis and I happy delight, mm -hmm. uh, was designed by Tom Savini. Yes. They reached I, out to um, like five different companies with the concept that they needed something iconic, but they wanted it to be varied. So the mask is split so that the bottom is like different faces from the top and whatnot. And the way that they use it and the way that Ethan Hawke does different registers of voice pitch when he has different ones and just, just again, bizarre choices. He was so in shape from doing Moon Knight that they, he was like, hey, we should do a scene with my shirt off. And that's how they came up with this really creepy game. Oh, God. This, this concept of... A naughty boy is what the game is boy. called. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So it's like, it's like, no. ooh, if you're locked in a basement, but the guy forgets to lock the door and you can leave, the kids call him on the phone and say, don't go upstairs. This is his favorite game. And the camera goes upstairs and shows you that he's sitting bare chested with a belt and a big creepy frowny face on waiting on the boy to take advantage of the unlocked door. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, 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 no. And it's. it that sounds intense <laughs> yeah it plays on masculinity because i don't even know if this is on purpose since i know him being in shape was the result of uh moon knight but he his chest is shaved and it stuck out to me because it's like this is a character who needs to present himself as a functional human and then wants to only be the masked person when he's indoors and he's got hair on his arms but his body is shaved so it's like or at least i think he does but i don't know you, you contrast, there's like this guy at home who's being abusive as a father with these sort of ideals that like, I can beat the right answer out of people. I can control kids by being, you know, having that authoritarian approach to parenting. Mm -hmm. And then you go over here as someone who's clearly been the victim of abuse and you see him grow up with this intentional mixture of varying, wavering, like he speaks in a higher register on purpose. So he has a more childlike quality to his voice. He's super buff, but he's super like almost prepubescent in some of the ways. Yeah. And like, <laughs> so it's, it's like you take two different sick kind of people and it's just, I don't know. It's just so thoughtful about how much can go wrong for people yeah. growing up. Like Ethan Hawke talked a lot about like, like, like coming up with a concept for this character and like the, the, the way that, that, that he describes it is, is when he's wearing the mask, he's, he, he's his truest self. And when he's out in public and not wearing it, he's, he's putting on a, a, a disguise. And yeah. so it's, which makes a lot of sense that with that ending scene, when, when, uh, when, when Finney removes the mask fully and he just freaks out. Yeah. I, I thought that was there's there was two things in the movie that I, I honestly would would criticize but I'm not over the moon about how much I like this movie and it's that because it's sort of very conventional mm -hmm. you know like like I'm a person who has to wear my mask and I'm a psycho so if you take it off then I'm suddenly vulnerable and I don't know who I am and whatnot like I mean it's like a thing that has happened in history and then you had Michael Myers stand up and someone took his mask off and he freaked out, but then he just put it back on. And then not long after that, you were introduced to, to, to Rorschach in, in Watchmen, who's similar. 
Sure. We even have it with Louise in the new Bob's Burgers movie. That's the whole story. Oh, really? Her, getting, her yeah. ears. Her ears. Mm-hmm. It's all okay. about her ears. Oh. Yep. So, yeah, like it's 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 this thing where it's they are. I love that they're not explaining so much in this movie. You never yeah. learn certain things. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do that, that to me would make my brain autofill a generic backstory that's from other characters I know who can't be themselves without some right. security thing. Um, and then the other thing was just the way the ending was such a left turn towards everything is okay now. Like this movie was so like dripping in pulp and like blood all the way up until then. And at the end, it's like, Hey, he beat the bad guy. So the bullies respect him now. And it's like, no, I mean, I, mean, I, I didn't like that. I, I, I like that. He's more confident at the end of it. But yeah. yeah, like 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 the bullies like respecting him is it's that's a little bit weird. To me, he he earned what they're going for in terms of like you have to stand up for yourself by his actions in the basement. Yes. So I don't need him to sit next to the girl in class he never had the courage to talk to and be like, call me a more mature version of my name. Like I <laughs> call me I Finn. To, to me, that after having worked on so many movies in LA, that just sounds like someone above the line was like you have to plug in this formula for this movie to sell ah, so and the writer was probably like oh okay fine i'll do it okay i like that. <laughs> i mean i don't know that for sure but i know that that is a thing that happens a lot okay, um, is yeah, that yeah. you'll have you'll have producers who are you know executive producers people who are putting money into the project that mm-hmm. have these requirements that are like you have to have this many minutes of this actor or you have to have this kind of ending for you know um, or you have to have this much sexuality or, you know, whatever it is in order for this movie to make the money that we need to make when okay. we release it. You're, you're, you're not doing that anymore. Yes. Is it, is it safe to ask, like, do you have a least favorite note or something that used to bother you that, that you would get? Hmm. Oh, good question. I think, I think kind of exactly what we were just talking about. I think, I think being forced movies being forced to plug in that formula mm-hmm. um, in order to have the movie produced. Cause I would read scripts written by people who I could tell were really good writers. So here's the thing I worked on a lot. This wasn't all I did, but I worked on a lot of like lifetime and Hallmark movies, okay. which are the most formulaic garbage okay. <laughs> that you can possibly imagine. If you dissect these movies, you'll see that they happen the exact same way at the exact same time marks. Yes. Like at 10 <laughs> minutes in, this is when this happens. At 22 minutes in, this is when this happens. Um, and that is uh, that is intentional. Um, and if you read screenwriting books, a lot of them, especially like the big Hollywood, you know, well-known ones, will tell you to write that way because that is what sells. Because That's that is what a producer will read and say... They'll flip. They'll flip to page 10 or, you know, 12 and look for that hook. And if they don't see it, they won't read the script. Right. Mm -hmm. So as a screenwriter, um, you're often pressured into writing a very specific way, which is why a lot of especially like indie filmmakers tend to want to write and direct their own work Um, because that's the workaround for not having to do things that way. But then it gets difficult because then you can't get the funding that you need, whatever. Um, But, uh, but yeah, I think going back to your question, I think that was the kind of stuff that would typically bother me the most was reading scripts and, and and knowing that the writer had talent, but that that talent was being squashed. Mm -hmm. So, so um brief one more question i don't want to keep you know like harboring about like your past and your job and whatnot oh that's okay okay. i i I, it's just fascinating so is do you feel like there's any merit to this sort of it's like so i went to school i studied a little bit of film history and writing Mm -hmm. and the most of what they had me read was like robert mckee story Mm -hmm. and uh the sid field uh screenplay one and save the cat save the cat yep like so save the cat like it's a, it's a very like like trust certain certain tricks and then like this formula is yes. kind of there but i didn't i didn't get a lot you know like robert mckee he has this idea that like there is an all kind of an objective right and wrong on how to do certain things mm-hmm. um but you know like it's it's and he loves chinatown i guess that's my other big takeaway from that but um like 
I, I didn't get too much of that where it incentivizes it as a you getting into a part of a business. So you hit these mile markers. Is there any mm-hmm. value to that to you? Do you feel like for someone like. Yes, I think it's it's kind of complicated because it can be a bit of a double edged sword, mm-hmm. um, which is that you can when you're writing, um, you can end up pigeonholed by these sort of structural rules mm-hmm. that you follow in order to uh, make the story something that will sell and that an audience will stick with. But that's the other side of the double-edged sword is that there's a reason that this formula works and there's a reason that people do it. And that is because um, the general audience either has come to expect it or it's what they are able to digest. Um, and so if you write something super off the cuff, it can be successful. Uh, the first person that comes to mind who tends to do that would be like David Lynch. Um, mm-hmm. he, he writes things that are very out there and weird and don't follow these typical formulas. However, mm-hmm. it's a really good example because he is also kind of a fringe filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, his stuff would be considered like cult classic movies which, as we know, are movies that very specific small margins of people right. love very, very much. Yeah, and yeah. most people tend to not understand or not appreciate. Mm-hmm. So um, all of the most successful movies, uh, Marvel is a really great example of the formula. Every single Marvel movie follows the formula. They do it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and they, they, they are very smart with how they do it. And they're very self-aware. Um, and that is where a lot of the comedy in those movies comes from. But I would argue that that is a massive part of the reason that those movies do so well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do think that there is merit to it. But I think that if you are a filmmaker, a writer or a director and you're uh, aiming for something that is kind of formulaic or trying to make something that's going to appeal to a massive audience, that you yeah. just have to be very careful to make sure that you don't write or create something that has already been done a million times. Yeah. Okay, cool, right. cool, cool. So uh, well, I want to go into the sixth sense real badly because yay, yes. Curtis hasn't seen it. Not Finally. Yet. So the main reason why I wanted to watch the sixth sense it is M Night Shyamalan, but it's early M Night Shyamalan. It's before he he started getting a big head and started trying to be the next uh, Spielberg. I think the big the, the big thing that I liked about it is 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 that. Uh, the movie doesn't give an explanation or, or, or like, like it's just accepted for the most part that ghosts are around. Uh, the, the, he's, he's not trying to convince the audience of what's going on. The only one who's like really skeptical of the entire thing is Bruce Willis throughout most of it. But uh, for the most part, you're on, on Haley Joel Osment's side. You're, you're seeing all the horrors that, that he sees. It's just. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 this is something that's bizarre that's really well done because I think I, I've said this a lot, so this isn't news to Curtis, but there's a period of time where M. Night Shyamalan's work, like script after script, I think like regardless of how you feel about the twist and signs, is like really well done. But around the time that Hollywood told him he could be this big, where like every movie he did came out as a big event, all of a sudden there's a lot of negative critical reception. And then split after the visit was like the big movie that he made this comeback with and then oh. it turns out split is the script he originally wrote back when he wrote unbreakable then he tries to make glass which he had to write now and it's just this consistent odd nose I, I don't know what happened in his life where he's still writing what he wants to write but all of a sudden it's wildly unsuccessful where you dial the clock back to pre signs and lady in the water and everything is like gold. And like, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like It's like the big, it, it, it's, I, I need to stop saying atmospheric a lot. Cause I've, I've been saying that a lot, but like, I, it, it's like kind of what I get from, from uh, science. Well, there's the, you, I'm not, sorry. Not science. You, uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Haley Joel Osment and Bruce Willis. Yeah, it's funny because it's kind of so genius the way that he writes it where you think Bruce Willis is your protagonist. Yeah. But also in retrospect, the things they don't explain are because you're seeing them aligned with Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. And so it's like you learn who the real protagonist was and it makes the whole rewatch a whole different. Right. Oh, yeah. And speaking of the rewatch, this 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 movie was actually made with with rewatchability 
and mine for a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which yeah. like, like, like you go back to like Star, like, like we've talked about this before. Like Star Wars was was made in a time where you saw it one time in theaters, and that's pretty much all you're ever going to see it. But like with when when with Bruce Willis being dead throughout uh, the, a majority of of the movie, they gave themselves rules that they had to follow to make to to make sure that uh, it stayed consistent going back for the rewatch. So Bruce Willis doesn't really move anything uh, in, in, in the restaurant scene where he sits down with his wife, the chair's already pulled out. Uh, he is normally left-handed. He trained himself to be right-handed. So you, so when they uh, did shots of him writing, you wouldn't notice that his, his wedding band is, is uh, missing on, on the other hand. You never see him open a door. Uh, during the funeral scene, uh, he doesn't cast the shadow and he doesn't show a reflection in, in the doorknob. Like they made sure like internally he is dead and he just does, um, does not know it. So when you go back and watch it, trying to find the fault in, in, in the twist, you, you can't find it because it's internally consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the idea of a story of someone who is haunted, who doesn't just have to beat it, like mm-hmm. turn it into an incarnation and succeed like oh if you don't believe in freddy krueger he disappears and whatnot and it's someone who like turns that into something they want to do with their life mm-hmm. it's, it's so unique it's such it's like one of those bizarrely unique ways of resolving a conflict where it just i i feel like watching the movie it's just going to be some kind of like okay bruce willis is a ghost now we got to find out why the kid's haunted and Bruce Willis is a ghost, so he's going to find the ghost that's making all the ghosts haunt him. Never explains. <laughs> it's just... He, no. He, he, he can just see ghosts. He just wants to help people now. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think I will... It's... To my dying day, I will wake up with nightmares of the image of that girl opening the tent, throwing up. Oh, mm. my gosh. Oh, yeah. But um, also, That's the cool moment. That? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the other thing. Like, uh, he intentionally put red in scenes where uh, the, the real world and the spirit world were kind of crossing over and, and uh, merging uh, to the point where if there was accidentally the color red in a scene where that wasn't happening, he made sure it was changed or, or reshot it. It is very consistent, like uh, with, with the scene when in, at, at, at the party where he gets, where, where Haley Joel Osment gets trapped in the cupboard. Yeah. He's, mm-hmm. He is wearing a red sweater and it's a red balloon that leads him up there. Yeah. And they, yeah. they full on put a, a some kind of red in the, in a doorknob that's shown multiple times. Yes. Without and with red and whatnot. If you see red, you're going to see a ghost. Essentially. Like yeah, but, uh, and there's, there's a, like one of the fascinating, like for, for me, about it, any kind of movie is like the casting process and all that. Apparently this was Michael Sarah's first uh, time he auditioned for a, a role and he was going for the role that Haley Jossman went for. Interesting. What a uh, different movie. Yes. But uh, he didn't get the job because he was a little bit too cheerful because he didn't fully read the part and didn't realize that, uh, that uh, Cole was supposed to be a, 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 a drawn back and introverted character. But yeah, just thinking about seeing Michael Sarah in, in, in that role, it, it would be a vastly different movie. It would think. be. Yeah. Haley Joel Osment was absolutely perfect casting for that character. Mm-hmm. But hmm. like most, but yeah, like just like everything that surrounds the film, like like more so than than the characters going on is is like the world itself is 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 fascinating to me, and like the idea that you get like kind of like relief from discomfort from this like little un, unassuming boy is wildly fascinating like, like the, the 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 end scene with with the car and where, where he's telling his his mom the last like grandma visits me some sometimes she said she went to her her grave and and, and asked a question and the answer to that question is every day what did you ask her and the, the scene is emotional the, the she's i i think that's uh tony colette who it is mom? it's tony colette yeah, apparently yeah. she's been a horror mom since 1999 <laughs> like so yep at some point it stops being a horror movie for me and it just becomes like this, this emotional like bridge between worlds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the kind of, I think that might be part of the reason it was so successful is like it was pitched as a horror movie. I think at first you had this reverse reaction where even though it was common in the nineties for parents to think, Oh, a movie's safe. And then it's too scary for their kids. I think people thought it was going to be too scary. And then they saw how endearing it was it became like, ooh, this is going to scare the kids, but ultimately it'll be okay. And I think that's why I saw it too young. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
it aimed for more. It aimed for more than cheap scares and yes. it was successful for doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, yeah. Yeah. One of the producers was, was really scared that they gave away the, uh, the, the ending a little too, too early, but the, the famous line, I, uh, I see dead people where like right, right, right after Haley Joel Osment says that they, they, they do a close up pan of Bruce Willis and flying that he's already dead. He thought they went too far and thought that they had ruined it. But with the but when they did test test screenings of it, no one re, uh, reacted to it, and so he, he felt a little bit more more comfortable about it. But like just the thought of of, of a producer saying we may have gone too far, we may need to take this out, and which I'm glad they didn't. It's a fantastic scene. Yeah, that's a cool that's a cool story. I didn't know that. So, Gretchen, what's your experience with the Sixth Sense? What do you like about it? I saw it not long after it came out. That would have put me at around six years old. Um, so uh, I remember being pretty horrified, but also pretty fascinated by it. And actually, I think that The Sixth Sense had a little bit to do with my early interest in like paranormal stuff, mm. you know, because um, I also I, you know, I don't know if you guys remember back when we were in elementary school and they would have those like little book fairs at one of those events uh i found these little mini like short stories that were the sixth sense related i and i was so obsessed with the sixth sense as a kid that i bought those books and i was reading them and i was like i remember like reading them in the dark in my room and like trying to spook myself um so i was really big fan from really early on and then i didn't watch it again for ages like so long that the twist at the end of the movie almost almost left me Mm. um which was really cool because when I did rewatch it at age, I think 27, you know, 21 years in the past mm-hmm. or so. Um, that is and, great. Yeah, yeah, it was a really, really cool experience. And you know what? It held up for me just as well watching it as, you know, a 20 something year old person. Um, and I think from a creative perspective, from, you know, writing and directing, I feel like it was. It was very, very well put together in terms of delivering a very specific set of emotions to the viewer. Um, as we were kind of talking about how it, it starts off as this spooky, scary horror movie, and then it becomes something so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what a lot of horror movies suffer from nowadays. I think most people who are cinephiles would agree that horror movies um, tend to be hit or miss more than any other category of film. Yes. Um, there are a lot of what people would consider bad horror movies out there. And I think that it's because a lot of them are very one note. They want to scare you. They want to make you jump. That's the goal. That's it. And The Sixth Sense is uh, very, very deep when you compare it to movies like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think the use of having the main character be a very young child uh, is always really risky when you make a movie because child actors are notoriously difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And um, because they're so young and have less, you know, years worth of experience in finessing the art of acting, mm-hmm. um, when you do see a child actor who pulls a character off so well, it's always extremely impressive. And I would say that that's definitely the case with Haley Joel Osment in this movie. Magnolia, too. Yes. Yeah, with Stanley. Yeah. Uh, thank everybody for listening. Again, we are This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. You can follow this this place and come and rant and nitpick and say all the things you want to say about how you think the Black Phone sucked. And uh, that is at T-F-N-R-C-M-E-L. Mm-hmm. And then you can follow me at High Contrast FLM and take it away guest with your contacts. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in uh, following more about me, um, the easiest place to find me is on Twitch. Uh, my username is Groucho Porks. That's Groucho, P-O-R-X. I am Curtis. You can follow me on Twitter at 90sGamer407, and you should be able to get to all my other socials from there. But you can also uh, follow me on Twitch at Merrick underscore Tainment, where I try to stream bi-weekly on Tuesdays and uh, Thursdays for miscellaneous games. And thank you again, Groucho. Yeah. For coming on and, you know, making us watch the frog movie. <laughs>